Thanks so much for tuning in to this special edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Now, recently I was able to participate in a special press conference that was sponsored by MPP in South Carolina, where South Carolina is working on a comprehensive medical marijuana bill that they hope to get passed very soon. And I was so impressed by some of the participants that were part of the press conference that I thought maybe I wanted to share that with you. Uh, the MC of the press conference was Mr. David Newsom. He's a U.S. Army veteran whose daughter Harmony was born with a very, very rare genetic disorder called, I hope I get this right, lesencephaly, which is means smooth brain. It causes seizures. And um, David has really been, you know, uh, with a nonprofit compassionate care organization in South Carolina known as CSC Health. Also, Mr. Don Howe, who participated in the event. He's a nurse and a veteran. Stephen Diaz, who's a U.S. Marine Corps veteran who cleared IEDs in Iraq and was severely injured uh, by one. He works with a Columbia-based nonprofit organization called Hidden Wounds, which created a network of holistic support for service members and their families. And also another veteran, a female veteran, who, because she lives in South Carolina, did not want to really show and reveal her entire identity. So she participated uh, in audio only, but um, she suffers from, you know, uh, combat PTSD uh, trauma that was caused not only by combat, but also by sexual assault while she was in the military. And this is something I think that, you know, will highlight the reason why, though there's been so much work has been accomplished, we've gotten so far now, 37 states across this country have some form of medical cannabis uh, initiative going on within their state, but there are several others that don't, and several others that are trying their best to even thwart the will of the people. So listen to this, and you'll understand why right now our veterans need so much help. They are the least of us. If we could do one thing, that's no matter how long this war goes on, take the patient off the battlefield. Okay. That's what we really need to do. Take a look at this. All right. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're recording today's press conference and we'll send you a link to the recording by 1 PM. So uh, please feel free to include the recording or any part of it in your uh, upcoming news coverage. My name is David Newsom, and uh, I serve as the executive director of the nonprofit CSC.health also known as compassionate South Carolina. Um, that works to legalize medical cannabis in the state of South Carolina, uh, along with other advocacy groups as well. And I'm also a U.S. Army veteran, uh, as well as all the panelists and our guests today at this press conference are also all veterans. Um, we're here today to draw attention to the thousands of veterans who have bravely served our nation only to come home to a state where it's a crime. To, uh, to relieve their suffering with a medicine that has given so many their lives back. And we're calling on the state legislator to end the, that injustice by passing the Compassionate Care Act. Um, for six years, our veterans and patients and loved ones have been sharing our stories to plead with South Carolina's lawmakers to allow seriously ill patients to relieve their suffering with medical cannabis, conditions all the way from neurological PTSD or many of the conditions that you'll see veterans talk about uh, and maybe hear some from of those from those veterans today. Um, as we've waited, uh, we've seen anguished veterans die from opiate overdoses 
and many from suicide. Uh, I have a lot of that um, experience myself with many of my friends who have either had to leave this state or have left this earth altogether due to the lack of viable treatment that uh, the state can offer our veterans. Uh, we've seen you know, others uproot becoming refugees from our state's laws as they move to a more compassionate state uh, where the medicine that helps them is legal. And uh, this cruelty has got to end and it must end this year. It is long past time for the legislator, legislature to pass South Carolina Compassionate Care Act. Uh, we have several speakers here today. Um, and uh, I will introduce our first one, uh, Stephen Diaz. Stephen Diaz joined the Marine Corps in 2005. He volunteered uh, to serve in Iraq where he bravely and successfully located IEDs for three months before being severely injured by one. Diaz co-founded the Columbia-based nonprofit Hidden Wounds. Stephen. Thank you. Um, I want to thank everybody on, on, on the panel. Um, thank you, uh, Montel, for, for being here and your platform. Thank you to the, uh, to the press that's willing to, to listen to us, um, as well as the other veterans uh, on the panel. Thank you all for your service and, and sacrifice. Um, to, to start off, I, uh, you heard a little bit of my, my bio there. I was injured in Iraq. Uh, in 2005, uh, which led to my stint uh, at the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, now called Walter Reed, uh, for a year and eight months. During that time, I saw uh, the medications um, that were put on us. Uh, there were some that I couldn't avoid because it was um, put into my body through, through my veins, and I just, I, you know, there's nothing I could do about that. Um, once I did have my own free will to say no to a lot of the, the opioids uh, that were given to us, I did that because I saw how it was causing a, the, the reaction it was causing to the other service members that were there, the, the addiction that, that was given to them, the, how they were trading the pills with staff members, um, how pills were being used um, to trade for, for harder drugs. Uh, in the hospital, in my time there, I saw other service members um, using uh, heroin, cocaine, um, inhalants, all because they were looking to curb either their physical or emotional wounds. Um, I was afraid to death of that addiction, and so I refused um, or pretended that I took the medication and would just discard it. Um, what I did instead was I abused alcohol uh, in something that in the military, it's, it's, it's almost uh, told that it's okay to do that. So something that I was already used to looking for uh, as an escape. Uh, and that's what I did to, to try to mask uh, a lot of the pain um, that I was under uh, and of course, something that, that a lot of service members go through, combat or not, um, to deal with a lot of the, the PTS or PTSD symptoms uh, that they were dealing with. And so in returning home, 
Um, I still kept up with the alcohol use for about five years because I didn't want to do anything else. Um, even leaving the hospital and going into the VA at the time, we're, we're looking at about uh, 2005, 2006, I could get any opioid that I wanted and as much of it as I wanted unchecked. Uh, and so it was really easy uh, for other service members who were taking that because they needed it and, and did it because that's what was told to them that that's what they needed to do. Um, but it was so easy for them to find addiction uh, in that. And so with, with my story of, of trying to find hope uh, and coping um, with PTSD, uh, I had a lot of veterans who would ask me for help because they saw they, that it looked like I was having a, a decent or livable life. And they asked me for help. And I told them to, you know, suck it up, keep moving. I didn't know how to help them. Keep, keep going to the VA, keep going to your doctors, keep getting your medications. Um, and I had six close friends take their life. And that's when I said, I need to do something about this. Uh, I teamed up with other veterans, um, other community leaders, uh, other providers, and we created a nonprofit called Hidden Wounds. Uh, and what we were looking for was evidence-based and non-evidence-based treatments from all around the country and the world to try to help veterans without having the need of prescription medication. At the time, I didn't, I didn't know about um, medical cannabis. It just wasn't on the scene yet, or at least on my personal radar, where medication was at, at any moment. I knew where I could go to get it if I wanted to. That prescription was ready and there screaming my name if I wanted it. Um, and, 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 I, and I didn't. Uh, and doing hidden wounds and, and helping veterans all across the country and even a few uh, overseas while on deployment because they don't want their other brothers and sisters or their uh, command to know that they were suffering. Um, we were able to, to learn about medical cannabis and how some veterans were using it to help cope uh, and ease their pain. Of course, all of these veterans were not in the state of South Carolina. And the ones that were in the state of South Carolina uh, were exposed to possible laced cannabis uh, or other cannabis that uh, was, was becoming very dangerous to them. Um, now we're, we, we are well into uh, the time with the, um, with the vape pens. I've had close friends who have died because they were using what they thought was safe uh, cannabis pens. And it turned out to be not. That was a, a, a pretty big nationwide case a couple of years ago. Um, it has since fallen off the radar from what I've seen in the mainstream media. Um, but what veterans are looking for is, is they're looking for hope um, and compassion. And they're having to seek it in other states because they just are, are more compassionate than ours when it comes to medical cannabis. And so, however, I can help lead that charge either for veterans to seek that as an alternative treatment uh, or to share my voice or story uh, to the media uh, or, or other leaders like they're on this call, I will gladly do it. Um, I, I hate to see our veterans have to live in the shadows 
they're already doing that when it comes to PTSD. They shouldn't have to be forced uh, to continue living in the shadows uh, and, and be shamed for trying to find something that's going to help them. Um, so if, if, if South Carolina can be more compassionate in that area when it comes to medical cannabis and, and the research uh, and hearing our voices, uh, that's, that's just amazing. And, and I will, I'll keep fighting uh, for as long as it takes to keep helping my brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, and I'll keep moving right along our, uh, our next speaker. Um, if for everyone who's on the uh, press conference and call, probably doesn't need a whole lot of introduction, but um, thank you very much for being here. Montel Williams uh, earned his media celebrity status as an inspirational Emmy award-winning television personality whom Americans invited into their homes for more than 17 years. Montel is also a decorated formal naval officer, inspirational speaker, author, entrepreneur, and advocate for patients worldwide. Um, he is currently hosting the Lifetime Show Military Makeover with Montel, and his daughter Marissa lives here in South Carolina. So uh, welcome, Montel. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, and thank you so much, Stephen, for you know your impassioned recount of what your life has been like. Um, I like to say, especially to all the people that are pressed, that you know my military career spanned 22 years in both the Marine Corps and the Navy. I did two branches of service. I was enlisted in the Marine Corps, then went to the Naval Academy, graduated, got my degree, and became an officer in the Navy. I achieved the rank of E4 and O4, and I'm really proud of the service that I had. It wasn't until after I left the service that I realized that there were some circumstances while serving that put me in a position where, though I will not say my service caused my MS, but my MS started while I was on active duty. Though I went misdiagnosed for almost 20 years in the military and then for another 15 years once I got out. And then finally, I was diagnosed in 2000 because I kept going back and forth to the doctors about severe pain and some symptoms that no one could explain. And that diagnosis for MS came through back in 2000. And so long before cannabis became the Vogue topic, long before cannabis became the green rush, back in 2000 to 2001, 2002, doctors only had a finite set of weapons in their arsenal to combat severe pain. And they were mostly opioid addicted or most mostly opioid centered. And so from 1999 to about 2001, I literally became one of the faces of our earliest opioid addiction groups in this country. I was taking at some periods of time, anywhere between five and 10 varied forms of opioid, whether they be, you know, the, the names don't matter, but varied forms of sets and things that before Oxycontin was even created, I was taking some of the most powerful opioids that we had available for doctors to prescribe. And I was very fortunate that I had a doctor who realized that I was coming, becoming addicted. And number two, didn't want to be responsible for that. And so he basically said to me back in 2000, I'm not writing you any more prescriptions for opioids. 
said, I found some patients that I know that have the similar types of symptoms that you do that have been finding some relief in this stuff called marijuana. Now, I'm never going to say that I recommended this to you, but I'm going to tell you that you should go look at it because you may find some relief. And back in 2000, back at a time when maybe some of you with this press conference don't know, but back at a time when our federal government had applied for a patent for cannabis, then gave itself its own patent in 2002 and had already been distributing marijuana through the University of Mississippi to about 20 patients back then. I literally started doing the research that was already printed at the University of Mississippi and research that was funded by our government and realized that maybe this cannabis thing might help. So back in 2002, I started my journey. And when I realized how much it helped me, because the first time I tried it, I had gotten a restful night night of sleep for the first time in about 20 years. And some of the other symptoms that I had from MS literally were eased by 80 to 90%. And so I started back in 2000, long before it became Vogue, long before everybody else jumped aboard the bandwagon. I started traveling around this country trying to see if I could convince legislatures around the country to allow for medical cannabis for those patients who needed it as the last form of treatment. And I think I'm very proud of the fact that my advocacy helped to change the minds of people in close to 15 different states and to continue to pass legislation to help us have access to efficacious and safe cannabis. But there was a problem. Back then, the majority of states, it wasn't legal in. And so I found myself having to travel back and forth to California and illegally transport medication so that I could use it. But then as more and more states came aboard and more and more information started to surface like we have that surfacing now because we're finally doing the research that is now in peer-reviewed study documentation around the world has now validated the fact of cannabis's efficacy because of the constituent parts that are called cannabinoids. And we know now that those cannabinoids do work. And all you have to do is take the time to look up the U.S. government's patent on CBD yourself And that patent right now will say to you 100% in what's called the abstract, what our government believes cannabis can do. And it talks about it as being a neuroprotectant. And the fact that it works for ischemic and pain-related neurological disorder. We know that. This is not something that is questionable anymore. This is something that is a fact, fact enough that our government has given itself a patent on it and continue to extend that patent. So it's time for us to make sure that we allow this medication to be used by the least of us. If we remember that less than 1% of this nation puts a uniform on its back to go around the world to support and defend our constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we know that they do so proudly. They leave parts of themselves in foreign countries. They do so proudly. And all they want to do is come home and live a pain-free, 
and a normal life if they can. And unfortunately, states like South Carolina don't allow for that when it comes to the use of cannabis. So now you've forced several South Carolina residents to have to become immigrants to other states so that they can just try their best to be as normal as they possibly can be. My daughter, Marissa, who lives in South Carolina, a few years ago, went through one of the most horrific bouts of lymphoma cancer that a lot of people who have this cancer go through. She had it twice with a vengeance and was again put on experimental treatment protocols that were as virulently horrific as they possibly could have been. My daughter lost her hair. My daughter lost skin. My daughter lost her esophagus. Part of her esophagus was she, the lining of her esophagus, she lost. That, of course, came back. All because she was given and put on a treatment protocol that was what we can deem a cure medication, but whose side effects were so horrific that my daughter ridden in pain the same way that I did for months before I started using cannabis. And because she was treated outside of the state of South Carolina, she was able to utilize cannabis to help mitigate some of her symptoms. But then she had to go back home where she is now in, in South Carolina and has no access. And if I visit her there, I have to be very cautious of the fact that because there's a target already on my back for being an advocate, I have to be very careful that I don't bring all my medication into the state for fear of being detained the way I have been now multiple times, all of which have been thrown out with prejudice by courts, but I have been detained for using a medication that even our government deems, our federal government has deemed as efficacious. During war and on the battlefield, we have trucks and buildings that have a big H on the top of them that normally foreign forces and forces don't attack because they recognize that it's a safe zone. South Carolina needs to be a safe zone. Take our soldiers, sailors, airmen, coast guardsmen, marines off the battlefield. Get them off the battlefield. I understand that there's a battle between those who believe in whether or not cannabis should be or should not be used. But while we're arguing over this issue, we need to take the patients off the battlefield. And South Carolina has the ability to do that through the South Carolina Compassionate Care Act. And I think you should do as much as you can to get this bill passed as quickly as you possibly can. It is only a matter of time right now. Even within the last three months, the DEA has now lifted rules and regulations against testing cannabis nationally. The testing facilities don't know, do not any longer have to go to just one location of the University of Mississippi. And if you don't know about that, you need to look that up. The University of Mississippi has been dispensing cannabis to about 20 patients 
in our country for the last 40 plus years. And they used to be the only place that universities and testing facilities could get cannabis from to test on and look at investigatively to see if there was any efficaciousness in the cannabis. Well, now our DEA has even now allowed for testing facilities around the country to get cannabis from places even overseas to test, to look at its viability. That says very clearly our government understands and recognizes how efficacious medication this is. And so this should not be a state-to-state one-off. We now have well over 34 states that have passed some form of cannabis legislation. This needs to be a national passage. But until that's done, South Carolina needs to please do what I say, take the patients off the battlefield and allow our veterans access to something that will give them relief. Thank you. Thank you very much, Montel. Our uh, next speaker, moving along, um, our next speaker, Jay, is an honorably discharged Army veteran who served for eight years. And she will be speaking anonymously today due to the medical cannabis illegality in South Carolina. Jay, thank you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so proud to be here today and speak my truth. I am an Army veteran who served from 2002 until 2010, including one tour in Kosovo. I've witnessed gruesome maiming, death, and destruction while deployed. I was also the victim of sexual assault during my time in the Army. I suffer from an extremely painful chronic progressive kidney disease that my doctors think was exacerbated by the medications I was given and the water we were provided overseas. I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, damage to my hips, legs, and ankles, and I suffer hearing loss. I used to take handfuls of pills daily, and every night I'd cry because I was terrified that I wouldn't wake up the next day. Cannabis was never a part of my life until about four years ago when my family begged me to get off the opioids. I had become dependent on these dangerous drugs and I was hardly able to work. I couldn't care for my children and it wasn't even helping my pain, my trauma, or my mood. It was destroying my kidneys even further and I became suicidal. I felt like a burden to my family. To help myself recover from chemical dependency, I started researching alternative pain management. 
And within weeks of medicating with cannabis, my pain was minimal, my kidney function improved, and my depression lifted. I was able to sleep. I was able to work and take care of my family. I started doing yoga. I lost weight. I could play with my kids and be the mom I wanted to be. Before that, I was passing three or four kidney stones a month, peeing blood. But after using cannabis, my kidneys improved. I did have to stop taking my cannabis medicine when I was employed last year. And almost immediately, my pain returned and I started to pass stones. Now I'm self-employed so that I can do the things I need to keep myself alive and healthy. I truly, truly believe this medicine is life-changing and life-saving. But right now, I'm afraid to show my face or tell you my name because the medicine that saves my life every day is illegal in South Carolina. In the eyes of the law, I could take the prescribed anxiety and pain pills and down it with a bottle of wine to get through my days and not lose any sleep because that's perfectly legal here. But the real medicine that has given me my life back has also added another layer of anxiety and tremendous fear of being found out and all the consequences that would follow. The people who are keeping it illegal are mainly law enforcement and I don't wanna lose my kids, my business, be harassed or pulled over. My state's asset forfeiture laws have been found to be unconstitutional, and I believe it is also unconstitutional to keep this medicine from patients like me who have not only fought for their own freedom, but for all of yours too. It is unbelievable to me that South Carolina considers me and thousands of other veterans, my brothers and sisters, criminals for treating our pain and saving our lives. Lawmakers need to correct this horrible injustice immediately. Please let me live. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jay. Um, <clears throat> thank you for, for being brave enough to uh, speak with us today and uh, speak with the press and, and obviously speaking to the lawmakers at this point. And uh, at this time, I'd like to introduce our uh, final speaker before I say a few words and then take um, take questions from the press. Uh, Don Howell is a registered nurse and a Purple Heart veteran. He served 22 years of active duty from the United States Navy and has uh, administered care in multiple combat arenas, including Beirut, Lebanon, Somalia, and Desert Storm. Um, all the first-class vacation destinations, for sure. Uh, he has also served has a staff nurse in the VA hospital system. Don, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you everyone uh, for sharing your experiences with us. Um, as you know, I'm a veteran as well as a registered nurse. Um, I, I just wanted to mention really quickly as a nurse, when we deal with patients having psychological issues, the first thing that we ask is, how is your mood? And that their response is a trigger to what we should do next. Nine times out of 10, when persons who have psychological issues, um, they're given the traditional psychological medi medication. And um, as you know, those medications take a lot of time, 30 days maybe, uh, for it to kick in. And during those 30 days for a veteran who, have, who has PTSD, it could be 
a very precarious time for them. As you know, suicide uh, is a big issue with veterans suffering from PTSD. And if you can curve that mood, which is the premise of all psychological medica medications, then you can help that person achieve a better quality of life. And that's what cannabis can do. Years ago, uh, when cannabis was first coming onto the scene, I was listening to CNN and they were talking about Sanjay, Sanjay Gupta was talking about cannabis and he was saying that everybody all over the world suffers some level of stress. And if you could take that stress away for just one moment, would you do it? And that's exactly what cannabis does. Now, as a veteran, I have served in Beirut, Lebanon, and um, during the bombing, uh, I was not lost. I did not lose consciousness, so I was able to visualize all the carnage that went on. As a veteran, I'm, I'm representing what happens to, with PTSD after living with it for 40 years. With Steve, with Jay, you hear about a lot of the issues that they tend to suffer now, you know, uh, such as flashbacks, bad dreams, et cetera, which is a terrible thing for them to experience. But as time goes on, if the PTSD is not treated, then it becomes harder to treat as you get older. And those effects, although we may seem normal on the outside, those effects do, it seeps deep into our psyche and our way of life. One of the main issues with PTSD is that we don't enjoy the pleasures that a lot of people tend to enjoy, like love. And as a result, we tend to have failed marriages and we have bad relationships at work and we get demonized or considered a troublemaker or whatever the case may be. And these are all symptoms of PTSD. So it's important for us to understand that the utilization of cannabis has a rapid effect and, and it alleviates the problems that we tend to have, which is mood um, in a fashion that's in a, actually natural because of our endocannabinoid system and the fentocannabinoid that cannabis provides. Steve had mentioned earlier on that his friends tend to turn to illegal drugs uh, in order to relieve the pain. And this does cause, you know, drug abuse and addiction. Jay had mentioned earlier on that when she was forced to stop using cannabis, that her symptoms quickly returned. The beauty of cannabis is its rapid onset and this rapid alleviation of how survivors of PTSD can uh, call pain. And that pain is all encompassing from emotional to psychological to physical. And for us to ignore what has already been documented as efficacious when we discuss cannabis is a lack of compassion. And it's cruel in a sense. As a matter of fact, 
in some states, if a physician doesn't do not or fail to address a person's pain, it is considered malpractice. I want that to sink in for a little bit. Lawmakers, our politicians, particularly in South Carolina, are the only ones that can make this law or the use of cannabis happen. It seems impossible with all the, the demonization and the, the bad rep that cannabis has had over the years, but making the impossible possible is the job of a politician. Cannabis products are especially helpful for, for patients with PTSD because of not only this rapid onset, but it doesn't have any residual effects. Like say for instance, the addiction that you would tend to see with opioids. So in all actuality, that after they stop using it a day, then the symptoms or the, or the, uh, the effects of cannabis go, go away. So, and that's also a huge benefit for the person who is being, who's, it's, who's taking the, uh, the cannabis. Veterans need better op opportunities. They need better alternatives when it comes to medication. 37 states have already adopted the utilization of cannabis for use um, in their, with, amongst their population and South Carolina does not need to be last. We have a lot of veterans here. We have a history of uh, veterans and patriotic duty in this state. It's important for us to understand that not only what happens with our veterans when they return home from the battlefield, but we need to also consider what happens when they have lived with PTSD for long periods of time. We have Vietnam veterans, as well as Beirut veterans, and soon to be uh, veterans from uh, the Iraq war who will live a long time. And that PTSD will change over time. And having cannabis available for these veterans over that period of time will be extremely helpful in order for them to cope a little bit better and to manage their lives a little bit better and, and be in touch with those people who they love because of the effects that PTSD tends to, or the negative effects that PTSD tends to have on veterans. Politicians, lawmakers need to understand that the plat old platitudes of cannabis being a gateway drug to harsher things is no longer is not true. Cannabis has been studied for a very, very long time, much longer than you would think. There's two ways of finding out the efficacy of any medication, and it's and it's used everywhere. One is you can have trials like they did for the coronavirus vaccine. Take 40,000 people and see what happens. Another way of doing so is finding out efficacy of, of, of any medication is through observation. You observe over a very long period of time and see what effects that medication had over people. Well, cannabis has been around for a very long time and people have been using it for a very long time. 
And these these lies about it being a gateway drug, it, it leading to psychosis, et cetera, is not true. And you don't, and there's always someone around who knows someone who's used cannabis and they know that these persons, these people are not heavy drug users because of the use of cannabis. So we need to understand that in all actuality, the evidence is there through the history of cannabis use and its existence, not only in the United States, but all over the world. Certainly I can go ahead and say, you can use the um, studies in Israel because they've been studying it for a very, very long time. As a matter of fact, I think uh, within the last five or six years in the university there, they've uh, dedicated a wing uh, in their university uh, for cannabis study. So they take it very seriously and the information is there, the empirical information is available. It's just, we need to step on the right side of history this time and consider the veterans, not only in, in the short term, because that's what we tend to hear about, the dreams, the flashbacks, but we don't think about the veterans who live with it for a long period of time. And these veterans are homeless. They don't care for themselves. They are malnourished and their outlook on life is shortened. They don't expect to have love. They don't expect to have a family. They don't expect to have any good things to happen to them when they see the future because they do not look at the future the same way a normal person does. So having cannabis available to these veterans and realizing that if we start early, that we can mitigate a lot of the issues that these long-term PTSD veterans tend to have that is so much harder to treat. We could make a difference in our young soldiers, young heroes' lives, so that, that when they become 40 and 50 and 60 years old, that they're more balanced and able to cope much better in life. Thank you. Thank you very much, Don. And thank you to uh, all our guests today, Stephen, Montel, Jay, and of course, Don, for uh, being here and telling your stories um, and being a part of all this. And before I take questions, I would just like to say uh, a little bit about myself and what, what, uh, what we're doing here in South Carolina and how I feel about it. I'm as all the veterans on this panel, we have donned a uniform, like Montel said, just 1% of the country's doing, and taken ourselves all over this world and fought for this country and all the inhabitants of this country to not only be free and enjoy freedom and democracy and all the things that we fight for, but we also went overseas and fought next to our brothers and sisters for the sheer opportunity to make sure that they got to come home too. And the biggest part about that is getting home doesn't just mean that you go to a small town in Texas where I'm from or a, or a, a big city. It means that you get to come back to the country that you love and come back to the friends and family that you were out making sure that they had a country that they could live in and have the freedoms to make decisions about their lives on their own. And the wonderful thing with the uh, with this is we would love for the Compassionate Care Act to be passed because we feel that it's 
in our best interest, not only as veterans, but as humans to have the right to be included in our own medical decisions. And that lawmakers should allow us the opportunity to seek medical treatment, alternative or non-alternative, as we see fit. As not just a veteran, but also a father of four, my oldest daughter was diagnosed with cancer when she was 17 and had her thyroid removed after two surgeries and thankfully have not seen cancer since. And my youngest daughter, Harmony, was diagnosed with lysencephaly, a rare genetic brain disorder, or otherwise known as smooth brain, where she suffered from the time she was six months old, she suffered 200 seizures a day. She was on seven pharmaceutical medications and seizure control was not a thing, was not an option. It, it, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Modern medicine had failed her. And because my wife, as diligent as a researcher as she is, she found CBD, which is a cannabinoid in, in all cannabis plants. Um, and we couldn't get a viable source for it. So my wife and I started a company. I de we developed an extraction process. I built an extraction machine. Uh, I'm no scientist, so we made it as easy as we could. And we uh, started giving full spectrum CBD oil to our daughter. And within a week, she went from 200 seizures a day to 12 days without a seizure at all. And that's not even something that we thought was possible. And for three years, I had not heard my daughter laugh or cry because of the drug-induced state she was in. She was in basically, if she was not seizing, she was sleeping or drooling from the pharmaceuticals. You're talking about barbiturates, things like phenobarbital. You're talking about Keppras and all kinds of other anti-epileptic medications that are mind-altering, that are ridiculous. And because of that state that she was in, she was unable to have any sort of emotion. She's nonverbal and she's non-mobile, so she doesn't talk eat or drink or feed herself. She eats and drinks, but she can't feed herself or walk. All her limbs work, but her brain just can't make the electrical connections to tell her legs how to walk. So after a few days of CBD usage, I heard my daughter for the first time in three years laugh and cry in the same day. So it was and has been something truly amazing. Now, at this point in her life, she was not supposed to live past the age of seven. She is now going on 12. And she has greatly improved quality of life. We are down to one pharmaceutical medication. She has two or three seizures in one month rather than 200 a day. So cannabis has saved her life. Unfortunately, what we run into is pediatric patients CBD works very well for. As they start to transition into puberty and adulthood, we find that other cannabinoids such as THC are the only thing that can be effective as far as controlling that seizure activity. So without access to THC and other cannabinoids such as THC, we run the risk of in a year or so our daughter running into puberty and us going right back to where we were before with no seizure control or any way to do anything about it.
And PTSD is something that our veterans fight every single day. As well as myself, I have an added wonderful new diagnosis that goes along with this, and it's chronic traumatic stress syndrome, which means every single time I'm walking in the store and I hear a kid scream, I'm instantly looking around for Harmony to find out if she's having a seizure, even when I know she's not with me. And those types of things, that type of waking up in the middle of the night just because you don't think that you heard her breathe correctly when she's in another room, those types of things are something that you go through every day. And I need to make sure that everyone understands, lawmakers and everyone alike, veterans fight for this country and continue to come home and fight for us. We just need those lawmakers to do a little fighting for them and allow them to have something, not only fight for them, but fight for what our veterans fought for, which is our children and our family and our loved ones. And even the people that we don't like or, dis or, or disagree with, we fight for them too. Even the lawmakers and law enforcement people who are holding this back and keeping it down. Guess what guys, we fought for you too. And we fought for your rights and your freedoms. Now just let us have ours. That's all we're asking. Thank you very much, everybody. And uh, I'll open the, um, the floor up for questions. Karen, who is hosting, will uh, assist me in um, calling on anyone who has any further questions. You can just use the raise hand icon if you have a question or even just jump in. Hi there, Alicia here with uh, WBTW here in Myrtle Beach. Uh, we've been doing an extensive in-depth series on medical cannabis and really um, how this is playing a part in the legislature right now. The biggest factor that we're getting from those who oppose it lawmaker-wise is the fact that our um, law enforcement in the state is not completely on board. Could someone here explain really the challenges and from other states who have passed medical cannabis, how is law enforcement able to work with this um, advocating for this program? I mean, what, what successes have we've experienced in other states that we're just missing here in South Carolina? Is there anyone that could uh, provide some insight onto that challenge and where you guys have gotten to that point? Um. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine regarding that. I was talking about our police chief uh, here in South Carolina. In Colorado, um, as you know, they were the first state to go recreational. The, the very first year, they expected, uh, this, by taxation, of course, they expected to make about $6 million from cannabis. They ended up making $18 million. The long and short of it is this. They were able to build a brand new police station and they were able to give every high school senior a thousand dollar scholarship because of cannabis. So I believe that particularly in South Carolina, they, they look at legalization of cannabis as being a threat when it can actually be a benefit simply because the money that they can gain from taxing from taxes is money that they would never get from anywhere else. It's more or less like the golden goose. So uh, having said that, I think that uh, 
maybe in the short run, that just in the transition, the the, uh, the law enforcement might see, let's just say, a drop in their money in terms of what they can gain from arrests, but they'll gain much more from taxes. And usually most states do contribute more money to the police in order to make uh, their efforts easier. Thank you. I can add to that. I'm Karen O'Keefe from the Marijuana Policy Project and I've had the honor of working with patients in a number of states to enact medical cannabis laws. It's not at all unusual to see law enforcement organizations, not rank and file so much, but organizations be opposed and concerned before a medical cannabis law passes. But once they pass, the same members of law enforcement that had been so vehemently opposed uh, admit that they didn't cause the problems that they had anticipated. So I can drop in the chat some before and after quotes from the same organizations. But for example, the head of the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association had vehemently opposed medical marijuana um, after the point, after the fact, after it passed, that same head of the police um, association said that police were unaware of any problems with the current cannabis program and do not expect any now, now that it includes pain. Um, so we've seen that time and again, and in many states, even if there's organizations that are opposed, they see that you have 36 states, including Arkansas, Louisiana, and Utah, where these laws are working well and protecting the seriously ill and are not causing law enforcement problems. I see Jamie Lovegrove's hand. Yeah, hi, uh, Jamie Lovegrove at the Post and Courier. Um, I was just going to ask if, if you all have been uh, in touch with uh, some of the lawmakers that are that have been supportive of this effort recently, and and have any sense of what the status is. I know there was some optimism heading into this session that that this would be uh, a positive year for um, this bill that they've that they've pushed for quite a few years now, and. Um, haven't seen a ton of movement on it recently, so I was just curious what what you all have heard about that. David, do you want to Yeah, Jamie. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so yes, we're working very closely with all the lawmakers involved uh, on both sides of the uh, of the issue, both sides of the aisle and the issue. Actually, um, there's a lot of bipartisan support for the uh, for the for the bill and its revisions and things like that. The House bill. And the uh, Senate bill do have some varying components to it. Um, the House bill is a little less restrictive than the Senate bill, but but both are very good bills and um, and have, like I said, a lot of bipartisan support. As we know right now, we've been speaking very closely with uh, the the uh, committee members and chairs of the committees. We are looking to have hearings. Now this is tentative and nothing's on the docket as of this time. The word is that we should be looking for hearings sometime between mid and late March um, to go ahead and get those things through committee and get the votes going so we can start the crossover, of course. And we know with COVID, everything's been kind of crazy. So crossover is probably not happening at the same time that it usually does every year because the session's a bit a bit wild, but there is a lot of, uh, like I said, a lot of bipartisan traction and um, a lot of movement. We suspect that we are uh, extremely close now to uh, getting this bill moving and passing, uh, much to the chagrin of law enforcement, but again, it always is. Are there any other questions?
seeing any. All right. Um, did Montel, or do you want to say any closing words before we go? Yeah, I think each one of our speakers did an incredible job today in being able to explain exactly why we need to, as I term it, get the patients off the battlefield. I would hope that you know those participants in the press conference and the press take those messages out there and write them the way you heard them. You know, because I think when people really understand what's going on at the personal level and then understand that, you know, it was well over 20 years ago that our government, you know, gave itself the patent, which was 6630507B1. And in that patent, our government stated unequivocally that cannabinoids have an antioxidant properties unrelated to mDNA receptors. This newfound property makes cannabinoids useful in the treatment of and prophylaxis of a wide variety of oxidative associated diseases, such as ischemia, age-related inflammatory diseases, autoimmune diseases. Cannabinoids are found to have particular application in neuroprotectants for limiting neurological damage following stroke and trauma. This is something that our government realized and found out over 20 years ago and for the last 20 years has maintained a patent on CBD so that it can control its distribution. Don talked about studies going on in Israel in the 1990s and the early 2000s. We, as taxpayers, funded the research that was going on in Israel. So this isn't something that is just based on the statements of a few individuals, this is based on our government's own reality. Now we need to make it a reality at the state level for everyone. I want to add something really quickly. Um, Montel had mentioned earlier on, and even in his previous statement about uh, the neuroprotectants that uh, cannabis does provide. Uh, there was a study uh, years ago um, and they had looked at the Vietnam veterans. Uh, as you have, you may or may not know, a lot of these veterans went out on patrol while they're in Vietnam. And uh, they oftentimes got into firefights. And then at the end of the day, they would return to their tents or their hooch, so to speak. And they would use cannabis to kind of shake it off, shake off their day. Those people who use cannabis in the Vietnam War after each patrol showed less effects of PTSD from those who didn't use cannabis after each patrol. In actuality, you, you've heard some jokes about, oh, I take cannabis and it makes me forget. When you take cannabis in stressful situations like battle, and you, you do tend to forget because you do have a short-term memory loss, but it comes right back the, the very next day, but the bottom line is, is that cannabis does let you forget the horrors that you suffered that day. Your body does provide that same protective mechanism whenever you experience an ex uh, 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 traumatic event, even a, a painful event. Tiger Woods, in, in, for instance, when he got into this car accident recently, recently and broke his ankle, it was so traumatic. He was calm. He talked. He wasn't able to feel the pain because his body was able to do that, to, 
to mitigate that pain for him. But the, the, what I'm trying to say is, is that cannabis has been proven over years that it does have a neuroprotective uh, quality to it. And, uh, and that's really important for people who are involved in either uh, the battlefield arenas, uh, epilepsy, or even a traumatic brain injury of any kind. Thank you very much, Don. And thank you very much to everyone that was here today to speak at the press conference and thank you to the press. Um, and I just wanna let everyone know as well, as far as the press is concerned, that there will be a link for the press conference uh, out by one o'clock today. And um, so with that being said, we're going to wrap this up and thank you everyone for being here and hearing our stories and thank you for uh to the panel and everyone being here telling your story thanks for joining me on let's be blunt with montel please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week we'd love to hear your feedback also so please send us your comments Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.